The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. You're watching the Squawk Box this Friday morning with Karen Cho and myself, Jeff Cutmore. Let's give you the headlines. Wall Street sells off with the Dow losing over 600 points for its biggest drop of the year amid heightened tensions between Russia and Ukraine. The White House says Moscow is preparing to fake a reason to enter Ukraine after an exchange of fire in the east of the country with an attack potentially imminent. We have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation to have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. Allianz reports a fourth quarter loss after the German insurer takes a 3.7 billion dollar billion euro hit amid probes into the collapse of investment funds and warns there's more to come. We speak to the CEO Oliver Better at 7:20 CET. Tesla CEO Elon Musk says the SEC has broken promises and accuses it of calculated effort to chill his right to free speech. Are you familiar with the term Renolution? It's another one of those uh, company made up terms and in this case it refers to Renault and its ambition over the next few years to expand its margin target from 3 to 5% and there are a whole host of other targets in there. The company hoping to uh, perpetuate and continue the turnaround process uh, that we're looking at for the auto sector here and it was one of the reasons that Stifel upgraded recently its call on Renault from a hold to a buy. Well let's see if the numbers this morning stand up. The uh, company delivering a uh, revenue line for the full year at uh, 46 billion. The operating income in at 1.3 billion. Automotive free cash flow uh, 1.2 billion for the full year with a net income line of 967 million being delivered uh, by the company. The group says it's exceeded its 2021 targets and they are going to accelerate the Renault uh, Renolution uh, strategy. It would be uh, better if they chose something that was a little easier to say at this time of the morning just as you're putting your teeth in. But the, uh, the message coming through from Renault is they do anticipate a fur- faster pace of margin improvement. So the group giving us for the full year a group operating margin at uh, 3.6% of revenue. Uh, V's uh, 4.4 in the second half of uh, 2021. The uh, company, as I say, targeting now uh, an improvement on the margin of uh, superior or equal to 4% in the full year 2022 outlook and that uh, broad strategy that they have uh, is to get themselves up to something around five percent. Part of the reason uh, I think that Stifle upgraded its expectations on operating margin and free cash flow is that they think the current pitch is a little too conservative and that ultimately Renault should be a beneficiary 
of uh, a cyclical upturn starting in the second half of 2022. Obviously, at the moment, there are higher car sales that are not being matched with delivery of vehicles. The expectation is that at some point you will see supply and demand come into closer alignment, and that will be a catalyst for improved numbers. Um, although, as I pointed out earlier, in the headline, um, this is already uh, an improvement on its 2021 target. Don't miss our interview with the CEO, Luca De Meo. That's 11.15 Central European time. That is a first on CNBC. Karen, there is always a small place in my heart for the Renault 5, particularly the rally version, which I thought was just fantastic. But that's an 80s uh, car, probably uh, out before you were born. (laughs) <laughs> Loyal consumers are, are welcome for a lot of these automakers at this point. A little bit of slippage in that share yesterday, as we saw from the industry figures. But the stock has certainly been playing catch up this year. What up 15% so far this year. Let's push on to some of the geopolitics. And the latest is that US President Joe Biden says he believes Russia is preparing to fabricate a reason to invade Ukraine within days. His comments come after the OSCE reported around 6,000 ceasefire violations in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Now, Mr. Biden is planning to speak with transatlantic leaders, including with the EU, about the situation as Western states warn that Russia continues to build its military presence, despite claims that it's pulling back troops. Meanwhile, speaking at the White House, the president said he was skeptical about Russia's claims of de-escalation. It's very high. It's very high because they have not, they have not moved any of their troops out. They've moved more troops in. Number one. Number two, we have reason to believe that they are engaged in a false flag operation. They have an excuse to go in. Every indication we have is they're prepared to go into Ukraine, attack Ukraine. I've laid out a path to Putin as well, uh, on, I think, Sunday. And so there is a path. There is a way through this. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will speak to Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov next week, providing Russia does not invade Ukraine. Blinken told the U.N. Security Council that Russian forces are preparing an attack in coming days. Blinken warned that the offensive could take place in various forms. Russia plans to manufacture a pretext for its attack. This could be a violent event that Russia will blame on Ukraine or an outrageous accusation that Russia will level against the Ukrainian government. We don't know exactly the form it will take. It could be a fabricated so-called terrorist bombing inside Russia, the invented discovery of a mass grave, a staged drone strike against civilians, or a fake, even a real, attack using chemical weapons. Uh, And that's been the feature of the week, hasn't it? Antony Blinken, other U.S. spokespeople, other Western leaders continuing to talk about the real risk of an imminent invasion. They say it is being planned, that it is something very much that is at risk of happening, and the markets are listening to that. And then, of course, you've got the counterclaims coming out of uh, Lavrov, uh, President Putin, and other Russian commentators who say there is no intention to invade at this time. But the satellite imagery appears to suggest that there is still a build-up 
of forces very close to the Ukrainian border. So at this point, there's a great deal of uncertainty, and I think that's been reflected, hasn't it, in the conversations you and I have shared this week as the markets have flip-flopped and they've gone from extreme pessimism to some limited enthusiasm. And yesterday was one of those days where we ultimately saw the markets close largely negative and down sharply before really that uh, talk of a meeting between Blinken and Lavrov seemed to lift sentiment a little bit. It was obviously too late for most in the equity session yesterday. And you know what else didn't help here? I mean, I would venture that largely markets are ignoring a lot of the data at the moment. It's taking uh, backstage, if you like, to the Ukraine-Russia story. But um, they couldn't help but hear uh, Bullard yesterday talking again about how he feel, feels that the um, the markets need to see um, a 100-point uh, move on interest rates, and it needs to happen relatively quickly for the Fed's credibility. And he wasn't the only one who was making those kind of noises. Loretta Mester also adding to just that noise around what interest rates are going to look like. So as we look at the performance for the market yesterday, clearly it was a, uh, a, an aggressive down session. The Nasdaq down most sharply, uh, nearly 3% here with the Dow Jones Industrial Average having its worst session of the year so far. Let's just have a look at how this uh, figures in terms of the uh, week-to-date story. I'll pivot and turn to my other side. Uh, this is where the uh, chart has been cunningly placed and it just shows you that volatility that we were describing here uh, that we've seen uh, through the week as a whole. And just interesting to see how we perform across this uh, Friday session because it seemed wherever you looked to try and find some safety, you didn't necessarily feel comfortable being there. Bitcoin, for those of you who are fans of that uh, crypto asset, Bitcoin fell through 41,000, so it didn't seem to be doing uh, much of a job of a safe haven. What about some of those other places where people have parked cash? Uh, gold had a bit of a bid. It did get a bit of a rally, I have to say. But as you look at the uh, gold price, and we'll do that in just a second, it does seem to have eased off, rather. But the crude story, 91.36 in terms of the uh, dollar price on WTI crude. Brent crude here, 92.74. And, and just maybe on that news of the Lavrov-Blinken uh, meeting, just a, a little bit of uh, risk-off premium coming out here and the same thing happening ultimately to gold. But gold has been a very difficult story, I think, over the last year. As uh, some have said, oh, oh, buy it because of inflation, and it didn't move. And some said, buy it because of risk and it didn't seem to move too much. Uh, yesterday, we did get a more uh, meaningful shift, I think, on the gold price. But as you can see here, anybody that uh, rushed in is watching any of those paper gains at this point, just beginning to ebb a little bit. Karen. And Jeff, it's a real tug of war, isn't it, between the geopolitics and a rising yield environment for gold. Well, let's take a look at the Russia situation in more detail as the U.S. has received Russia's response to its security proposals. Russian news agency TASS published this statement, which hits out, out America's refusal to rule out Ukraine's acceptance into NATO and warns military technical measures are on the table if the U.S. does not agree to Russian demands. 
Russia's Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs squared off with the US at the UN and accused the West of misrepresenting Russia's position. I believe that now we look at our partners in Western capitals to drop and to stop this hysteria about the intentions of Russia. The tensions will loom large in discussions as Western leaders, including the US Vice President Kamala Harris and Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, convene in Germany for the Munich Security Conference. Hadley is there for us and Sylvia is still in Brussels as European leaders meet. Hadley, let me come out to you first up, but we're hearing from Antony Blinken about a, an attack within days. Just give us a sense of this heightened time frame now that world leaders are working around. Well, Karen, as you know, here at the Munich Security Conference, 30 heads of state, 100 diplomats all gathered here. Um, this is the 58th edition of this conference. And even though they've scaled it back in terms of the attendance, um, everybody is here that needs to be here, if you will. We know the vice president is, uh, has already arrived in Munich. We know that the secretary of state is on the way. We know that President Zelensky is still planning to attend this conference as well as his foreign minister. And then we've also, of course, got the chancellor of Germany. Olaf Scholz. We've got the NATO Secretary General, a big conclave, frankly, including Arcel van der Leyen of leaders. Now, the diplomacy that could take place over the next several days is, is really the crux of this matter, because there is no official delegation from the Russian side here, and yet these conversations are going to continue to take place between Western allies, NATO allies. Listen in to what we heard from the Secretary General of NATO yesterday. I think what we are seeing now... Um is uh, a kind of new normal for European security. Because we have seen this trend over many years, where Russia contests fundamental principles for European security, and where, there are, uh, and, uh, where they're willing to, to, to use force, as they've done against Ukraine, Georgia, but also to threaten uh, with the use of force to intimidate uh, countries in, in Europe. Um, and uh, we have seen this development over some time, especially since 2014. And that's the reason why NATO has responded, because we don't have any choice uh, than to make sure that we continue to preserve peace and continue to prevent any room for miscalculation, misunderstanding about our ability to def defend and protect all allies. And I think it's really important to point out that in spite of the heightened rhetoric, not just uh, that you heard there from the NATO Secretary General, really in preparation for any potential eventuality in terms of invasion in Ukraine, in spite of the fact that we heard from the president yesterday talking about potential imminence of this invasion, and in spite of the fact that we heard from Antony Blinken as well, there is still a lot of skepticism, I must tell you, um, here on the ground in Munich about whether or not President Putin is actually going to do this. And I think that that's really important to point that out. I mean, we're now seeing diplomacy continuing to kick the can down the road again and again. The Russian line stays um, pretty straight, frankly. They have not deviated from their line. The United States, of course, and Western allies continue to say there is wiggle room here. But one thing that they're not going to give on is, of course, the idea that Ukraine could eventually become a part of NATO if they wish to. Now, one of the things that we're going to be focusing on over the next couple of days, I'm going to be speaking to the NATO Secretary General. I'm going to be speaking to the Managing Director of the IMF as well tomorrow. And I'm, this evening, we're going to be talking about when we can actually get back to work in a pen 
panel focused on the global pandemic with Bill Gates, as well as the foreign ministers of Sweden and Canada, talking about the different approaches of various nations to this uh, this problem. But I do want to emphasize again, guys, it's not just the Russians that are pushing, pushing back here on the idea of an imminent invasion, in spite of satellite images, in spite of the fact that the White House has said 7,000 additional troops are on the Ukrainian border now. Um, there is a lot of skepticism, frankly, among Western leaders about what President Putin is actually going to do. Hadley, I think you've uh, set us up very neatly to catch up with Sylvia in Brussels. So thank you for that. Let's move from Munich to Brussels. EU leaders are meeting there this week with security high on the agenda. Um, Sylvia, it seems to me, as Hadley discusses the on-again, off-again view that we've had around whether the Russian troops are moving away from the border or moving closer to the border with more being added, the Europeans have had to come up with some answers as to what sanctions would look like. Are we getting any closer to a clearer picture of just how swinging any potential sanctions would be? Well, they are giving that issue more attention, Jeff, but there's no detail on the table whatsoever. In fact, when the leaders gathered here on Thursday, they talked about these tensions with Russia only for about an hour, because the reason why they're here in Brussels is actually because they're meeting African leaders. And so the focus here in Brussels at the moment is not Russia, is not Ukraine, but of course, this is off the back of their minds. And indeed, they added that extra hour in the summit here in Brussels exactly to discuss these latest tensions and to see whether or not they needed a tougher approach. Now, I know that in that hour of discussions among the 27 leaders, they did talk about sanctions, but it was a general debate, Jeff. And in fact, I also asked the Joseph Borrell, he is the foreign policy chief of the EU, where are we at, what will take the EU to actually impose new sanctions on Russia, having said that uh, indeed the fighting, for instance, in the eastern part of Ukraine has actually intensified over the last 24 hours. Let's take a look at what he had to say. We will concentrate all our efforts on the diplomatic activity. But on the other hand, and the Council today has been informed about it, we have already prepared a full package of sanctions. We have been working on that. I've been in touch with the US, with all our like-minded countries, with the technical support of the Commission, we have a very tough package prepared. You're saying that the, the fighting has intensified in the eastern part of Ukraine. Isn't that the time to actually impose new sanctions? When the moment comes, we will act decisively. When the level of intensity of the aggression requires. The other message that the EU leaders said on Thursday was indeed that they are united in supporting Ukraine and indeed in answering this uh, potential new aggression from uh, Russia. And this is not a new message, but it's very important, Jeff, because it essentially highlights that they're all on the same page and therefore uh, essentially greenlighting further sanctions against Rus Russia would be easier. So that is an important message from the 27 leaders as well. And that was conveyed by the Polish Prime Minister as well. I also spoke with him on Thursday and he said that actually this unity from the 27 has surprised Putin that he was not expecting that. Okay, Sylvia, terrific. We will see you a little bit later on. Thank you so much. Uh, let's take the break. We'll be back in just a moment. The German insurer Allianz is booking a 3.7 billion euro hit as it prepares for a financial or for financial fallout 
from its US funds business. Um, we have a first on CNBC interview with the company's CEO, Oliver Bauter, about the legal bill next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. To the latest corporate earnings, and Allianz has set aside 3.7 billion euros as it prepares for a financial fallout from its U.S. funds unit. The German insurer and asset manager is facing multiple probes and lawsuits linked to the so-called structured alpha funds, which suffered massive losses during the pandemic-triggered market volatility in early 2020. Investors have claimed around $6 billion of damages. Allianz expects a settlement with major investors shortly. The provision has resulted in a net loss attributable to shareholders of 292 million euros in the fourth quarter. Let's get to Oliver Bettier, who is the CEO of Allianz. Oliver, welcome back to the show. Nice to have you back on board with us. Let me just dig into this provision a little bit uh, so we have some clarity here. The 3.7 billion that's been set aside, it doesn't make up the 6 billion that investors have been claiming so far, according to media reports. So how do we see this 3.7 figure? Is it just an initial provision? Will there be more to come? Or do you think the damage claim will be much lower than anticipated? So good morning and thank you for having me. and thank you for the question. As you know, the uh, proceedings with the officials are still going on. So in terms of what I can say this morning, I am still restricted. However, we made a huge progress in terms of reaching settlement with the vast majority of the investors that were unfortunately affected by the structured alpha meta. And we're very happy to report that we are now able to really size that. However, we have not yet settled with uh, the U.S. Department of Justice and the SEC, so I can't really comment on the details, uh, nor can I exclude any further um, financial programs and and, uh, financial implications, but we'll book them as soon as we have a settlement and we're working very hard uh, to resolve this as quickly as possible. As you can see from our numbers, however, even um, the charge that we've taken have not taken us off course. 2021 was the most successful year of our franchise ever. And the net income after this charge is even at the level almost of last year. So the financial strength uh, of Allianz is still growing and we're looking with confidence uh, into the next few years. Oliver, as we talk about this provision and the the problems you've suffered at the fund. It does strike me as being in contrast to uh, many of the conversations we've had personally before where you've been so focused on risk at the organization, managing very, very carefully any anomalies that may come your way. You must be personally somewhat disappointed by what's played out here. And uh, no doubt, I'm sure remedies are at, uh, uh, at hand to try and fix the situation to make sure it does not happen again. Can you just walk us through that? Absolutely. So we're obviously not happy with what has happened. And again, once we have the statements from uh, the U.S. uh, Departments of Justice and the SEC, we can comment in detail because they are going to determine uh, how this is being looked for the public and then we will comment. So please, again, uh, respect that I can only casually comment. But we are indeed disappointed. We're working day and night to make sure that something like this 
can never happen again. Oliver, the where does that is, leave you in terms? Always, Sorry, me, Oliver, please, I just, just wanted to ask you, way, what, nice where does that you. leave you then in terms of uh, the structured product market? Because I guess you've made changes to the, um, the investment, the, the, the global investors' business that has uh, yes. reduced the risk of uh, further problems. Um, is this a market you're just it's, not interested in now? It's, it's really interesting observation you just made. Actually, we changed all of the management team in Allianz Global Investors at the end of 19, so just before the market crash. And it's a bit unfortunate because the new team has just a brilliant job in terms of cleaning the product portfolio, uh, de-risking, including risk controls. And then again, three months later, um, the market crashed. So since then, we have announced that we are reducing the product scope by 40% that we're getting out of things that are highly risky for investors, and we've been executing that. In fact, AGI, uh, just to mention that, has had the most successful year ever in its history. So investor confidence is unabated. We had more than 40 billion in net inflows. We have recorded an almost 50% higher profit at AGI. So investors are really trusting the company, and that is actually giving me the confidence that we can get over this and focus on the future as soon as possible. One last one from me on this, uh, and then we'll move on, because I know there's so many other interesting things to talk about. But haven't we learned here that um, you can prosecute illegality, but incompetence is down to you. And if they bought the product, then buyer beware. They didn't do perhaps what they might have been hoping they would do in the circumstances because of Omicron, but no one could have forecast that. Don't you think uh, there is an element to, to this story of uh, the U.S. authorities going after the wrong person in this situation? Uh, I think the U.S. authorities are very professional. They're doing the best to make sure that we do right by the investors. Remember, investors have suffered a lot and we want to make uh, do right by the investors. And we need to make sure we have the proper um, controls in place. And we, again, we have done everything we can beforehand and we are improving even further. The issue at the end of the day is for us to think through what business do we want to be in? Can we control the tail risks and do we advise clients properly? Now, again, let's remember these products were highly volatile. They made a lot of money for the investors in the five years preceding. So it was a pro product to be in. So it was not a low risk product. And um, it was also a product for specialized pension funds, not for uh, retail investors by and large. Mm. So we have to make a decision and be accountable. We cannot blame regulators or anybody else. We have to control our own destiny, as we know somebody else will otherwise. Uh, uh, it always seems it's European companies having to pay up if they still want to have access to U.S. customers. Um, just to move on from that, um, can I ask you about the, uh, the insurance line here? Because we know it's been a fairly torrid uh, 18 months, two years in terms of the property and casualty business. Uh, what's the outlook like there and what is your premium price hike going to look like this year, given that we're very focused on the increased risk of events and general inflation? So um, generally, climate change is here, right? It's not something that is coming in many, many years. It's here. And the higher storm activity, higher flood activity, just a reflection on that. We have been warning about that uh, for many, many, many years. And finally, unfortunately, people feel it in their pockets because governments have not done enough to address the underlying issues. Now, why do I say that? 
because the increased activity obviously has an impact on how the industry has to manage risk and how consumers unfortunately will have to pay for that unless we uh, prepare for climate change much better first. Second, Allianz has, despite that, a very profitable year. Uh, despite record flood um, losses in Germany, north of a billion for us alone, it was, the, by the way, the biggest insured uh, event ever, and so we were on the side of our insureds, we have improved our combined ratio by two and a half points. So we are using uh, our capital very efficiently. We're using the reinsurance markets very efficiently in order to make sure we get uh, very good returns for our clients and our shareholders. But as I said, prices for uh, NetCat covers are going to go up probably for the industry we don't know yet. But it would surprise me if they weren't, if the activity doesn't abate. And you know, we're having storms in Germany and Europe as we speak. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.